Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 48, Radio Salvador and Civil War. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Make labels when we make labels. Claim your free birthday Sunday when we claim our free birthday Sundays. Today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 13, Radio Bart, which first aired on January the 9th, 1992. Two weeks after the last episode, and welcome to the brave new world of 1992. Indeed. And I'm going to be talking about the Salvadoran Civil War. It started on the 15th of October 1979 and didn't conclude until the signing of the Chapultepec Peace Accords on the 16th of January 1992, a week after Radio Bart first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Quick plug. As hinted at in a previous episode, I have recorded an episode of my good friend Paul Abbott's podcast, The Head Ballet, in which guests discuss their favourite novelty songs. It'll be out next Wednesday, August 19th, 2020, if all goes to plan. And my choice is Simpsons related, which narrows it down to two. But we do have a wider discussion of the strange phenomenon that is singles by cartoons. So tune in for that. Excellent. Oh, I've just got one thing to say right now. It's hot. We're in the middle of a heat wave and Tom brain, no work, good, hot. So I apologize <laughs> if this is substandard. It's very much. Oh, crap. Weather. Um, it is. It is. Uh, it's too hot today. But let's think cooling thoughts as we go back to a time when presumably it wasn't that hot, at least in the northern hemisphere. January the 9th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? Well, predictably, it's still Bo Rap. And at number two, it's a track that I honestly thought we were going to miss because I've actually mentioned that we'll miss it in a previous episode. It's the KLF featuring Tammy Wynette with Justified and Ancient. Nice. However, because I've already done a lot about the KLF and we already know what happened there and what's going to happen. And besides, we won't find them on Spotify anyway. I'm dropping down to number three where we get... Right said Fred again with Don't Talk, Just Kiss. I feel like this is the passing of a torch from an act that we talked about a lot in season two to one that runs through season three with us. So uh, bear with me for the symbolic moment. We previously discussed their breakthrough single, I'm Too Sexy, and how it was arguably the most high profile victim of Brian Adams' stranglehold on the UK chart. Now they're back with a less controversial single, though not as good. And it's still a familiar slice of vaguely house-enthused disco pop, very much plowing the classic Fred's furrow. There's an additional vocal line on the track from Jocelyn Brown. Jocelyn is an American singer who is usually a guest vocalist on someone else's thing, though she did have a hit single as herself in 1984 with Somebody Else's Guy. That's the name of the song, not another collaborator. This song was arguably her biggest mainstream hit, though she did get high positions in America's many genre-specific charts, the R&B charts and the dance charts and so forth. This song got to an impressive, 
brackets for a British act, close brackets, number 76 in the US Billboard Top 100. And was actually Jocelyn's third highest entry in that chart, which is quite an achievement when you consider the amount of attempts she's had at it. In basically every territory, though, this single performed worse than I'm Too Sexy. Except, of course, in Germany, where it went to number two. Oh, those crazy Germans. Disco never goes out of style in Deutschland. So where does that leave RSF? Can they turn the tide and hit the top spot? Or will Richard and Chums be forced to toil in the acid mines? Or, as they were better known at the time, Gay Time TV? All I know is my gut says maybe. So stay tuned to find out. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.1, approximately 13 million viewing households, highest rated on Fox, 31st in total for the week. The production number was 8F11, and the credited writer is John Vitti, as we discussed way back in episode 2, Bart the Storming of the Stars EHQ. The chalkboard gag is I Will Not Carve Gods. Perhaps a callback to Hezron, carver of graven images from Homer versus Lisa in the Eighth Commandment there. And let's face it, he could use more love, so I'm a fan of that theory. The couch gag is they bounce around on the couch looking confused. Simple things at this stage. But what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to get down and funky. Lisa is aping the dance on a music television show, and Homer steps in when their moves get a little risque. Although he has no problem with the adult women shaking their stuff on the screen to the sweet sounds of funky see, funky do. (laughs) He's so distracted that he gives Lisa a ridiculous amount of money to buy Bart's birthday present, nicely establishing the pivotal event that we're building to. Speaking of, Homer sees an advert for the Superstar Celebrity Microphone, a product that allows amplified speech through AM radios. And when he hears that supply is limited, he acts fast to secure what he believes will be a great present for the boy. Not like the shoe trees and shelf paper he usually gets him. The big day comes and Bart is featured on Krusty's Birthday Pal Roll Call. And thanks to HDTV and Freeze Frame, I actually saw his name on that for the first time ever. He's then off with his birthday coupons. He says 46 local merchants will be offering him freebies, but we only see the insultingly small birthday Sunday at Phineas Q. Butterfat's 5,600 flavours, a shave at Jake's Barber's, and for some reason, a tango lesson. And with that, we're off to Chucky, I mean, I mean Wally Weasels. <laughs> we cram fun down your throat is their slogan, but Bart's not having much of that when he sees his presence although he does previously enjoy a game of Larry the Looter, which looks great fun for an old coin-op. But I've skipped a list there. Tom, can you name Bart's birthday presents? Oh, well, he gets a cactus. He gets a label maker. He gets that sort of snazzy hat and blazer ensemble from Martin. Oh, I can't remember the rest. Socks or something? Socks, yep, the... Good guess there. Uh, also, I mean, I, I won't penalise you for not saying superstar celebrity microphone because we've we've covered okay. that one. Uh, the other one was Dr. Marvin Munro's Guide to Etiquette, oh, which I, I assume you just shut out rather than Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's why I didn't get it, because it's Marvin Munro, and everyone tries to shut out Marvin Munro because he's awful. Yes. Oh, and, we, and we even get some more of it in this episode, don't we? We do. We do, twice in fact, I think. Um, But well done, Tom. You got every answer that was worth getting. (laughs) Thank you. So as we can see from that, that's a a very poor crop with two 
two standouts eventually. So Bart comes to actually really enjoy the label maker, sticking property of Bart Simpson labels on basically everything he can find. And in time, he also comes to like the microphone. Uh, the latter suffers from a poor demonstration from Homer, but Marge does a much better job of it. And more importantly, he can immediately see some prank potential. So he starts by convincing Homer that aliens are invading. But Homer's just glad he's using the present, so doesn't punish him. Next up, he fakes Maggie's first words, listens in to Lisa dissecting the latest Corries in Non-Threatening Boys magazine, simulates teacher flatulence, and literally plays God with Rod and Todd. And then, his masterwork. He drops a radio into a disused well and creates the character of Timmy O'Toole an orphan rejected from the elementary school by Principal Skinner for his shabby appearance. The town is entirely fooled, and a media storm brews up in double-quick time, with media speculation shoring up a pretty thin story. Speaking of thin, none of the Springfield police's officers are slender enough to go down the well, so unorthodox solutions such as falconry, fishing, and freezing are all on the table. And we also get a charity single. We're sending our love down the well. A pitch-perfect parody of the kind of celebrity dogpile record for a good cause that was the style of the time. <laughs> There's a fair few local celebs involved. Tom, any ideas who? Well, Marvin Monroe we established. One of the things I really like about that scene is it's obviously a Mickey take of We Are The World, which was led by <laughs> Turbo Nonce Michael Jackson. Um, but the Springfield version, you've got... Bleeding Rums Murphy, you've got the news anchor from Channel 6, the one who isn't Kent Brockman, the weather girl from Channel 6, um, oh, Krusty the Clown, of course, Renee Wolfcastle and Sideshow Mel. But one of the things I really like about it is that we're only, we're only three series in and already Springfield has a cavalcade of mediocre celebrities to, to appear on something like this. I think that's great. Absolutely. Um, and it's only going to get larger from there. But but the to have established the world so well in that short amount of time is, is nothing short of a miracle, frankly. Mm. Uh, I'll give the full list, but I think you've given a very good account of it. So from, from left to right, top row first, uh, we have Sting, not local, but, you know, worth worth mm. mention. Um, Sideshow Mel, Radier Wolfcastle, Dr. Marvin Munro, Captain Lance Murdoch, the Capital City Goofball. Uh, and one unnamed man in the top right who I couldn't identify and I suspect is not an established character. Uh, and then moving to the bottom row, we have Troy McClure, Scott Christian, who's the alternate local news anchor, Krusty uh, the Clown, Stephanie the Weather Girl, later to become Stephanie Brockman, Bleeding Gums Murphy, Mayor Quimby, who I think is chancing his arm in this one. He's not, not quite um, you know celebrity on, on this level. Uh, and Princess Kashmir. Oh, yes. Nice to see her again. Yeah, so there, there we go. Excellent. Well done again, Tom. Um, back at the well, a carnival has sprung up with plenty of hawkers and stalls and even a big wheel. And then even better, we get Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> it's cat splat fever. Itchy fakes a suicide attempt by jumping into a well and Scratchy dives after to rescue him. But Itchy is comfortably sat about halfway down and witnesses the felines plummet into a crocodile. His ghost descends to heaven, but Itchy shoots the ghost with a revolver and the ghost plummets a second time, presumably back into the crocodile. <laughs> one of the classics there. I, I remember that one very fondly. 
Oh, I love it. It's 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 so brutal. How could you shoot, you know, the soul of the angel of someone in the head at point blank range? It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so that episode is dedicated to Timmy O'Toole. As Lisa sees Santa's little helper try to wrest the microphone from Bart. When the local news immediately reports dog-like noises from the well, Bart is rumbled. And Lisa panics him when she realises he must have put a property of Bart Simpson label on the radio, leading him to try to retrieve it but fall and become trapped down the well himself. Oh, irony. He is forced to confess and the embarrassed town is happy to leave him to suffer. The infrastructure breaks down around the well. Funky see, funky do's hit, I do believe we're naked. Knocks sending our love down the well off the top spot. And even roving reporter Dave Shutton goes off to pursue the Lincoln Squirrel instead. <laughs> I love the Lincoln Squirrel. It's it, it's one of the best pieces of timing in this episode. And there's a lot of fantastic bits of timing. But it's just the way Dave Shutton goes... Now, that's a story. And when you get that classic spinning headline <laughs> saying squirrel resembling Abraham Lincoln found. <laughs> then you have Ken Brockman <laughs> and you think he's going to say there's a big development and it's at the well. But instead he says, and our main story tonight, the Lincoln squirrel has been assassinated. <laughs> Complete with a chalk outline with a lay corn. It's, it's amazing. And those two moments are probably only 40 seconds or so apart as well, but it's, mm. it, it just works. It works so well. So Homer eventually has all he can stands and can't stands no more and starts digging Bart out solo, although he's joined almost immediately by groundskeeper Willie. And that has a ripple effect. It's an old-fashioned hole digging, and it's been a while by gar. <laughs> the, uh, the dig picks up a lot of local momentum, although it keeps missing amazing finds like a Triceratops skeleton, a treasure chest, and a crashed Rigelian spacecraft. But with the help of Sting, Bart's not a fan, but he's a good digger, they soon free the boy, and the town takes steps to make sure no one ever falls down the well again by putting up one small single-sided caution sign. What an episode. That's in classic territory there. No, it's absolutely brilliant. They are really into timing and density and just little things for for me become like the trademark of simpsons like when you've got wally weasel singing bart's birthday song with all the animatronic robots um you have signor bivarati who at one point his tail falls off and he catches fire and it's the way the wally weasel guy walks on as if he's going oh yeah all right i'll get it sorted out (laughs) As, as, as if Senior Bifiorati catching fire is a regular occurrence. It's great. We've had little bits like that before, but it just feels like the whole thing was was on point right the way through. Um, mm. Like the, the the momentum and the the kind of the the speed at which the gags kept coming was was really impressive. And I think doing this kind of um, this watch through for the podcast, it it showed me that that wasn't always there. Um, mm. and it, but it's going to be there regularly from now on. Maybe not every episode, but you know, it's it, it's really getting there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So looking forward to that. Just just got to mention, by the way, this is the episode where they've got loads of Neapolitan ice cream and Homer rejects it because everyone's eating the chocolate. Now, that's actually my least favorite flavor in Neapolitan ice cream. Um, so if any listeners have got a load of Neapolitan ice cream that's just got the vanilla and strawberry left, please get in touch with us at the usual place. Uh, I'm sure a deal can be made. So begging for ice cream aside, are you ready for a, a character debut? Is there one? Yes. Sting. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Sting is part of Simpsons canon, thanks to this episode. And there's a lot of career to cover here, so here we go. Originally part of Power Team USA, where he famously teamed with Jim Helwig, who would later go on to become the Ultimate Warrior. (sighs) Basically, there's also a famous wrestler called Sting, is my angle here. But I won't waste any more time on that lame joke, since long-time listeners will have known for a fact that was coming anyway. So, straight back to the musician. Born Gordon Sumner in Wall's End, Northumberland in 1951, he graduated from grammar school, quit university and played jazz by night with a number of local acts, earning the nickname Sting from his habit of wearing a wasp-like yellow and black hooped jumper. He then moved to London in 1977 and formed The Police with Stuart Copeland and Henry Padovani, who was later replaced by Andy Summers. Briefly tagged as punk by presumably drunk and high music journalists, their cod reggae sound, including a really dodgy, perhaps we could best say of its time, Jamaican accent impersonation from lead singer Sting, found huge mainstream success. The police became arguably the biggest band in the entire world at that stage, whilst having various internal difficulties and hissy fits. The term creative differences might have been invented specifically for their ego-driven situation. Towards the end of the band's original run, we started getting Sting solo material. Oh joy. Starting with the album The Dream of the Blue Turtles, which is every single bit as pretentious as it sounds, and featured the execrable single Russians. Surely the most egregious instance of a rock star going, come on, man, we've all got to get together on this one, right? Mm -hmm. This side of Live Aid, which for all his environmental and humanitarian hot air, he did not consent to reforming the police for. Time for a quick reminder that they were arguably the biggest band in the world at that stage. So, yes, if you want navel gazing, noodling and occasional clumsy Cold War paranoia, that's the album for you. (laughs) It continued to be horribly pompous and easily dislikable for the next, uh, let's see, 10, 20, well, well, basically right up to date, really, including, but not limited to, songs in Italian, Tantric Sex, the album Ten Summoners Tales, recorded at his Elizabethan country home, and goddamn do we ever get to hear how idyllic his life is in interviews from around the time. Trying desperately to tap into Quentin Crisp's Outsider Cool with an Englishman in New York. And then largely disappearing up his own, I mean, into Hollywood for soundtracking and Grammys. And then, and then just as we were finally starting to get him fading away as a spent force, Princess Diana up and dies around the same time as Diddy drops his maudlin hip hop classic in air quotes. I'll be missing you, which is just the police's I'll be watching you with the best bit taken out. And lucky old Sting was catapulted back into the public eye. And then 
he finally got the police back together for an incredibly lucrative tour of unfortunately lukewarm and unenthusiastic concerts because, quel surprise, they'd fallen out again almost immediately. And as if it couldn't get any more ridiculous, he then embarked on concert tours with Paul Simon and Peter Gabriel. Never has the world seen such worthy, hand-wringing, own-fart-smelling musical cavalcades as these. So if it's not obvious, and with the qualifier that I'm looking at a person's art and reported actions, rather than having any actual experience of knowing Sting, who others have given anecdotal accounts of as being an okay, quite reasonable kind of guy, IRL, he certainly appears to me to be a pretentious, sanctimonious, money-hoarding muso-twat of a slightly different but unmistakably similar flavour to the U2 singer Bono Vox. And yet, and yet... In this episode of The Simpsons, here, and only here, I think he's really good. He yeah. doesn't get much to do, but he does it all absolutely perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it, it leaves that door open a crack. The fact that he was willing to send himself up, the fact that he was willing to send up big music charity efforts, it just suggests he might have more about him than I give him credit for. Now, this is especially true when you consider who we were meant to get instead. One Bruce Springsteen. Yes, the boss himself, the leader of the E Street Band, a band with about 14 guitarists, all of whom get a solo in every song. The show wanted him, and he said no. Possibly because they were lampooning the incredibly embarrassing single We Are the World by USA for Africa. Basically, America's answer to Do They Know It's Christmas by Band Aid to which Springsteen had supplied a typically earnest, overwrought, sweat-stained vocal. Also worth uh, worth noting, as we did earlier, that We Are The World was led by a turbo nonce, mm-hmm. as opposed to Do You Know It's Christmas, which was led largely by Midge Ur. So cometh the hour, cometh the man who wasn't actually on that single, but was on Band-Aid, and the rest is history. Oh, and in practical terms, his lines were recorded in New York with John Vitti. There you go, there you go. He does give the best or something I've ever heard a celebrity do. So, yeah, good on him for that. Makes it. Absolutely makes it that. So we're on to Did You Know? I could have gone on for an hour about Did You Knows and possible Did You Knows and half references. And, you know, but a, a lot of it, I think, is to do with what people have brought to certain things rather than things that are actually references. So I've tried to limit it to ones that I think are, are relatively solid. See what you think. Okay. Matt Groening is said to have come up with basically the entire episode. And that idea came from the 1951 Kirk Douglas film Ace in the Hole, where Douglas's ruthless news reporter comes across a man trapped by a cave-in and manipulates the rescue efforts to benefit his own career. There are huge parallels, particularly in the cottage industry that springs up around the well, but the film has a much darker tone. Homer sings a terrible feedback-drenched version of the song Convoy by C.W. McCall, a novelty hit about a protest by truck drivers that was released in 1975 and went to number one in the Billboard Hot 100 and number two in Britain. Quite the performance. It did so well they actually spawned a sequel, Around the World with Rubber Duck, released to predictable diminishing commercial returns. A parody of the original will be included in a later episode of The Simpsons, Christmas Convoy, as featured in Season 15, Episode 7, Tis the 15th Season. The parody features the killer line, 
10-4, King of the Jews. Wow, okay. The show that Homer is watching the dancing girls on, and this is actually a bit of an assumption on my part, as we never hear its name mentioned, but it appears to be the Soul Mass Transit System. A parody of the very long-running, we're talking 35 years here, American music show Soul Train, which was given its Springfieldian title in Season 5, Episode 4, Rosebud, when Mr. Burns shuts it down along with the rest of television. The show largely showcased African-American acts and music of black origin. So if you fancy a laugh, check out David Bowie's very incongruous appearance thereon from November the 4th, 1975. He's also repeatedly called David Bowie by the uh, presenter. When Bart sneaks back to the well, we hear a song that sounds suspiciously like, but legally distinctive from, Axel F. by Harold Faltermeyer, as used in the Beverly Hills Cop movies. This piece of backing music would be used in other episodes going forward, but perhaps my search term optimization was not fantastic because I couldn't find a list of them. It is definitely used in Season 3, Episode 18, Separate Vocations. So our next airing of it isn't actually that far off, which is good because it's pretty good. The title of the Itchy and Scratchy cartoon in this, I told you I had a few, was Cat Splat Fever. That is a reference to the song Cat Scratch Fever by rock and roll hunting enthusiast Ted Nugent. We see Wall E. Weasel's Pizza Restaurant and Arcade for the first time in this episode. As I alluded to earlier, it's based on the American kids party staple, Chuck E. Cheese. I feel like we see it a few more times, but the only definite appearance I can find is in Season 23, Episode 18, Beware My Cheating Bart. I think I'm getting it mixed up with Whistling Willies, which is South Park's version of Chuck E. Cheese. Mm. As always, Simpsons already did it. (laughs) It also features the Touch of Death coin-op that was a major plot point in Season 3, Episode 3, When Flanders Failed. And finally, Life Imitating Art. On the 19th of September 2017, an earthquake referred to as the Puebla earthquake struck the greater Mexico City area, killing 370, injuring 6,000 and collapsing over 40 buildings in total. Televisa, Mexico's largest news network, reported on the struggle of one Frida Sofia, a 12-year-old girl trapped in the wreckage of the Enrique Rebzamen school. I probably pronounced that wrong who was apparently found via thermal scanning. The story was picked up by international news sources, but Frida Sophia, and I'm skimming over a lot of interesting detail here for time purposes, but anyway, she turned out not to exist. Everyone blames everyone else for this, and her perceived existence has been chalked up to collective psychosis due to extreme trauma. So why do I mention this? Well, apparently, rival network TV Azteca is said to have lampooned Televisa's mistake by broadcasting Radio Bart on 22 September 2017, around the time it was confirmed that Sophia didn't exist. (laughs) Very clever. Very clever. I can't top that, Tom, so let's get some memeable moments on the go. Okay, okay. Well, classic episode, and it's chock full of classic memes as well. First one appears in the first few seconds of the show, and it's the dance that Lisa is doing to the... Funky see, funky do video. That makes a great reaction gif if you're just looking for something uh, celebratory, essentially. Number two. Who's got any of those microphones left? Yeah, a couple. <laughs> I couldn't you... do I couldn't do that visual gag justice with words, but I'm sure I'm sure everyone who's seen it knows what we're talking about. It's uh, yeah. it's it's a fantastic cut gag. Mm-hmm. As we've already alluded to, the Neapolitan ice cream. 
Mmm, chocolate. Don't. Mmm, chocolate. Don't. We need more chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry ice cream. And then one of my personal favourites. It's when it's when Bart is using his microphone uh, to prank Rod and Todd Flanders, and he goes, "Oh, do you want a happy guard or a vengeful guard?" Happy guard. It's one of my favourite little bits. And finally, it's an old-fashioned holdigging. By gar, it's been a while. Use used whenever something that's gone or gone away for a little while comes back, or sometimes not gone away for very long at all. It's a good old-fashioned labour infighting. By God, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I most recently saw that um, on some centrist bashing. And before <laughs> that, before that, on some Chungus memes. So, you know, it's 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 the meme of a thousand uses. Mm, absolutely. And that is Radio Bart. So, we're off to El Salvador, I understand. We are, we are. Okay, so El Salvador. We're back in Central America. So we've talked about Central America before. Panama in Episode 4, there's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega, and Nicaragua in Episode 8, the Telltale Nicaraguan Election. Geography-wise, El Salvador is on the south coast of Central America, kind of in the middle. It's bordered by Guatemala to the northwest and Honduras to the north and east. Now, the only cultural reference I know is the song El Salvador by Athlete. Swamp goes... Fly to El Salvador, I don't know why and I don't know what for, I've seen the picture for myself. Now that one. Yeah, it kind of suggests they didn't know much about El Salvador either. Which I don't think think anyone does, judging by what I've read about El Salvador. So anyway, a, a brief history of El Salvador. Now, before I carry on, I should point out that the many points in El Salvador's history, including the Civil War, are pretty brutal. So fair warning. Like its neighbours, before Europeans showed up, it was populated by various indigenous people, including the Lenca, Maya, people and the Olmec. Not Aztec, Olmec. After the Europeans, most notably the Spanish conquistadors, came to the region, they brought with them diseases such as smallpox, which decimated the native population. Although the most famous conquistador was Hernán Cortés, famous for conquering the Aztecs in what would go on to be Mexico, Others would conquer other parts of the New World. From 1524, conquistadors led by Pedro de Alvarado pushed further south from Mexico across the Rio Paz, the river that today forms part of El Salvador's western border with Guatemala. His aim was to take the nation of Cuscatlan and increase the area under conquistador control. Cuscatlan makes up the region of modern-day El Salvador, and it was home to the people people, which is a slightly confusing thing to say because people is P-I-P-I-L, People, people. Ooh. And they bravely resisted the Spanish invasion and put up one hell of a fight, despite being way behind the Spanish in technology. According to Alvarado, the people had shields decorated with exotic feathers and three-inch thick armour that was made of cotton, but despite this, it could resist arrows, apparently. And the people warriors outnumbered the combined force of the Spanish and their indigenous Mexican allies. After a brutal battle, the Spanish retreated to the mountains and Alvarado himself was injured. While in hiding, Alvarado decided to send in some soldiers on horseback, hoping the animals would terrify the people, but that didn't work. The boot was on the other foot, and this time the people attacked the Spanish, taking some of their weapons. After that, Alvarado attempted to establish a dialogue. Not too difficult, apparently, as the people and the Spanish allies spoke a very similar language. Alvarado wrote a letter to the people, demanding the return of their guns and that the people surrendered to the King of Spain. 
The people refused, sending their famous message, if you want your guns, come and get them, which is a pretty hard-ass thing to say. Yeah, it, it is the equivalent of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So after suffering more defeats, the Spanish retreated to Guatemala. In the following years, a smallpox epidemic decimated the people, and Pedro de Alvarado appointed his brother Gonzalo to take the fight on. He did so, and by 1525, the people were conquered. That year, the city of San Salvador was founded by the Spanish. Both the name of the country, El Salvador, and the name of the city, San Salvador, are named after Jesus Christ, meaning the Saviour and Holy Saviour, respectively. No surprises to learn that the Spanish brought their religion with them, that being Catholicism. Another people who lived in the east of El Salvador, Belenca, held out for a few years more before being conquered too. For nearly 300 years, the Spanish ruled El Salvador as part of the Kingdom of Guatemala, a territory that covered a big chunk of modern-day Central America. During this time, the economy of El Salvador was largely agricultural, with the main cash crop being anil, a source of natural indigo dye. Now, indigo dye has many uses, and nowadays most of it is synthetic, but its most common use is to make jeans blue. So if you'd have worn blue jeans in the 19th century, chances are that it'd be coloured by dye that came from El Salvador. Ah. So as the years wore on, the Spanish found it harder to control their territories in Central America. There was growing unrest as people wanted independence, inspired in part by the US Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the subsequent Revolutionary War. In the early 19th century, Spain was weakened by the Napoleonic Wars and could scarcely afford resources to maintain and manage their overseas territories. Independence movements popped up all over Central America, with the one in El Salvador being led by the priest José Matias Delgado, which annoyingly the Delgados are not named after. I was hoping for a nice link there, but never mind. So on the 5th of November 1811, he rang the bells of the Church of La Merced, signalling to his supporters to take over San Salvador. The rebels confiscated 3,000 guns, looted the royal treasury, and held out for nearly a month before troops from Guatemala took over. In 1821, the Spanish relented and all the Spanish-controlled colonies in Central America became independent, forming the short-lived Federal Republic of Central America, of which El Salvador was a part. That didn't last as next year the Republic boasted to join the Mexican Empire, something El Salvador opposed. From 1841, El Salvador was independent until it joined Honduras and Nicaragua to form the Greater Republic of Central America in 1896, which dissolved just two years later. This is one of the things about Central America. You look at it and you go, well, there's a load of tiny countries and, you know, they're all the same religion. They all speak the same language. So why on earth aren't they all together? And this is, that has been tried throughout history, but it never lasts. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, El Salvador had a succession of military dictators, elections and coups. The first three election didn't happen until March the 1st, 1931, when Arturo Arujo of the Labour Party came to power. His stint in office, in which the armed forces went without pay, lasted just nine months before he was overthrown by a coup d'etat led by General Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez. Martinez turned out to be a bit of a fascist. In January 1932, mere weeks into Martinez's dictatorship, peasants in the west of the country led by Farabundo Marti rose up against him. Armed with machetes, they took over towns and killed local governors. The response from Martinez was brutal. His forces discriminated against the people, and by the end of it, up to 40,000 people had been killed. History remembers these events as La Matanza, or the Massacre. Between 1931 and 1979, El Salvador was ruled by a series of military dictatorships, these included the election of Julio Abd 
Alberto Rivera Carvalho in 1962, who won with 100% of the vote as the sole candidate. He represented a horribly misnamed Party of National Reconciliation, a party designed to give the idea of the trappings of democracy. So it's one of those situations where, you know, he's leads a political party. It has a nice name, but in reality, it's a military dictatorship. Yep, can't think of any more of those. Mm-hmm. So in 1969, a war with neighbouring Honduras did a lot of damage to those countries. By that time, many Salvadorans were living in the west of Honduras. Land reform laws in Honduras created tensions between the two countries as many Salvadorans were kicked out by the Honduran authorities. The war lasted only four days, but it saw thousands dead and hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans displaced. It took place under the backdrop of the World Cup qualifier between Honduras and El Salvador, hence it's known as the Football War. In 1972, yet another coup was attempted, this time by more left-wing members of the army who tried to install José Napoleón Duarte as president after his unsuccessful attempt to get elected in what was fairly obviously a fraudulent election. Duarte was arrested, tortured and exiled to Venezuela. The last leader from the PNC was Carlos Humberto Romero, who came to power in 1977. However, despite being from the military himself, Romero was overthrown by a different military hunter, a group of military officers and civilians known as the Revolutionary Government Hunter of El Salvador, or JRG, in 1979. By this time, El Salvador was in crisis. The government frequently killed outspoken critics, and farmers were out protesting in just one of the many activities that led to the rise of left-wing groups who demanded an end to military rule. Demonstrators were out on the streets almost every day, where they would be attacked by the army. The junta made several promises which were firmly in the realm of the left wing, including land reform and nationalising the coffee and banking industries, moves which would have been huge, especially for coffee. As such, they won support from several unions and left-wing parties. The US and the Carter administration saw the junta as some sort of compromise, they believed they could be in a position to meet the demands of the protesters and bring some stability to El Salvador. Because of this, the US supported the Hunter financially and militarily. The honeymoon period for the Hunter, if indeed there was one, was very short. While the Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Arnulfo Romero, expressed hope that the Hunter would have good intentions, some left-wing groups increased their protests on the streets. Shortly after the Hunter was formed, the former defeated presidential candidate Jose Napoleon Duarte returned from his exile in Venezuela and joined it, becoming its foreign minister. By the end of 1980, he became the head of the junta and therefore head of state. The promises of the junta didn't materialise. Archbishop Romero quickly turned against the junta and spoke out against their human rights violations. In February, he wrote an open letter to President Jimmy Carter, you know, history's greatest monster, saying this. Political power is in the hands of the armed forces. They know only how to repress the people and defend the interests of the Salvadoran oligarchy. On March the 23rd, he gave a sermon where he called on soldiers in the army to do their Christian duty and disobey orders to kill civilians. On the 24th of March, he visited a cancer hospital in San Salvador. That evening, he celebrated Mass at the hospital's chapel. After he had finished speaking, the car pulled up at the entrance of the chapel. A man got out, raced inside and gunned down Archbishop Romero where he was standing at the altar, shooting him through the heart, killing him instantly. His funeral at San Salvador's Metropolitan Cathedral was attended by over 250,000 mourners from all over the world. During the funeral, smoke bombs were thrown into the crowd, followed by rifle fire from the balconies of nearby buildings. This caused a stampede that left dozens crushed underfoot. 
Overall, the death toll at the funeral was around 50. An investigation by the US in 1993 laid the blame at the feet of Roberto de Boisson, a former army major associated with the right wing of the army. They believed that he organised and financed the assassination of the archbishop. Surprisingly for a left-wing resistance, the guerrilla groups managed to unite under one banner, forming the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front in October 1980. They named themselves after Farabundo Marti, the leader of the rebellion against the fascist dictator General Martinez, which ended in La Matanza. The Junta had various apparatus at their disposal, including Orden, O-R-D-E-N, the National Democratic Organization, possibly the most badly named group I've talked about yet. They were formed as a paramilitary organization in order to ensure that the government won the 1972 general election. Officially, they were disbanded by the Hunter as part of their reforms, but by the start of the Civil War, they had been quietly reactivated. In reality, they formed death squads who would terrorize the local population under the orders of the Hunter. On December 2nd, 1980, four American duns who were in El Salvador for humanitarian purposes were raped and killed by members of the Salvadoran National Guard. This caused outrage in the USA, and the Carter administration stopped payments to the Hunter. For six weeks. After that, they were increased, with Carter claiming that the Hunter were doing all they could to investigate the murders. By 1981, the Hunter had increased their repression and enforced a curfew on the general population. Hundreds were shot dead for violating it. By now, the battle lines had been truly drawn, with the government strongholds in the cities and the FMLN holding onto their bases in the mountains. The FMLN quickly became well-versed in guerrilla tactics, launching quick raids into government areas, then retreating into the mountains. They recruited from the general population and held classes for their recruits, teaching them to read. As we know from experience, left-wing groups in Central America are very good at raising literacy rates. To defeat the FMLN, the government used scorched-earth tactics. The idea was the guerrillas could move from town to town, village to village, So if they found any guerrillas, they would burn down the village and either displace or kill the civilian population. Government forces committed many notable atrocities during the war, a notable one being the Rio Lempa massacre. After government forces swept the Cabanas region, thousands of survivors, including many women and children, tried to escape by crossing the Rio Lempa. Government forces tracked them down and opened fire, even using helicopters on them, killing hundreds indiscriminately. Shortly afterwards, a sweep of the Morazan department would culminate in the El Mozote massacre, in which up to a thousand civilians, including dozens of children, were killed by the notorious US-trained Atlacatl Battalion. The US denied that the massacre had taken place, calling it leftist propaganda and smearing any journalists who tried to report it. In 1982, the FMLN called for a peace settlement that would involve a government of people from all backgrounds. By now, Ronald Reagan was president of the USA and he rejected the idea, claiming the FMLN wanted to establish a communist dictatorship. The Junta wanted to hold elections, but the National Federation of Lawyers refused to draft legislation for it, saying that they couldn't possibly be free and fair while the country was under military lockdown. Meanwhile, government attacks on civilians continued. It is estimated that up to 16,000 civilians were killed by government forces during the 1982 and 1983 alone, During this time, the FMLN stepped up its operations. In one instance, they attacked an Air Force base, destroying attack helicopters and bombers. In 1984, they managed to hold a presidential election that was between Duarte and Army Major Roberto d'Abuisson. The CIA favoured Duarte because he'd been their man for years and they considered him a moderate. If anyone can consider the man who ordered the murder of thousands of civilians to be a moderate. After his election, the massacres of civilians continued. In 1987, the Central American peace accords negotiations took place with the aim of ending the war. 
and it looked for a while like they were getting somewhere. The FMLN's demands were simple. The death squads must be disbanded and all guerrilla fighters must be granted an amnesty. The Salvadoran government passed an amnesty law, meaning that in theory, guerrilla fighters could turn themselves in. However, the government also granted amnesty to its own soldiers, including ones that had committed atrocities. And the death squads continued to operate, killing and torturing hundreds. Rigged elections saw Alfredo Cristiani of the right-wing Arena Party come to power. This angered the FMLN, and they responded with their biggest offensive to date. In November 1989, they caught the government off guard and took over large areas of the country, including entering San Salvador. At one point, they took the Sheraton Hotel and battled the forces of the government floor by floor. Although they did not succeed in overthrowing the government, they showed that they were stronger than previously thought, and it was clear that they could not be defeated militarily. The government retaliated by killing thousands, including attacking a guerrilla field hospital where they killed doctors and nurses. Eventually, the UN started a peace process in 1990. Ironically, fighting escalated during this time as the government and the FMLN tried to gain the upper hand. The peace negotiations took place at Chapultepec Castle in Mexico City, and they resulted in the Chapultepec Peace Accords. They were signed on January 16, 1992, a week after Radio Bart first aired, and a ceasefire came into effect on February 1, 1992. Remarkably, for a civil war that had gone on for over 10 years, the ceasefire was never broken. The accord saw big changes for both sides. On the government side, the size of the army was reduced by 70%. The death squads were dissolved, sadly not in acid, and big reforms were made to the police. On the other side, the FMLN gave up their arms, subject to an amnesty, and they transformed themselves into a political party. Since the end of the war, El Salvador was led by presidents from the right-wing Arena Party until 2009, when the FMLN put up a candidate who wasn't a former guerrilla. This was former TV journalist Mauricio Funes, who won the 2009 election with 51% of the vote. The peaceful transfer of power was a milestone in El Salvador's history. Funes was succeeded by his vice president, Salvador Sanchez Serin, who won the 2014 election. As for Funes, he currently resides in Nicaragua after he was investigated on corruption charges. The current president is the rather dashing Nayib Bukele, who won the presidential election in 2019. He was born in 1981, which makes him slightly older than me, but younger than Gareth, which is a little disconcerting. <laughs> it's like, why why am I not president yet? Bukele's president in, in El Salvador. Up until 2017, he was a member of the FMLN, but was kicked out for so-called defamatory acts. He joined up with the Grand Alliance for National Unity, a smaller centre-right party. His election victory made him the first president of El Salvador to not come from either FMLN or ARENA in the modern age. And that's it. The Salvadoran Civil War from 1979 to 1992. I mean, you did not lie when you said about the uh, the bloody history. Um, that's horrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There we go. So Central America. I mean, it just makes you wonder, why don't you hear about that sort of thing in history classes? Well, you know, I, I know why, because it shows the US to be complete bastards, because it, it, they followed the patterns that they'd done many, many times before in plenty of other countries. Basically, they didn't want another Cuba. And it was much better to have a right wing murdering fascist dictator in power than it was to have someone like the FMLN who just wanted to you know, redistribute land so that, so that you didn't have this ridiculous situation where you have this oligarchy where there's about a dozen families who control everything 
and they are exceptionally wealthy and everyone else is dirt poor. It's like you want to inc- improve the lives of the people of your country? No chance, no chance. We're going to we're going to give the government who's oppressing you uh, two million dollars a day, which is what they did in El Salvador. Until they kill some nuns, in which case we won't pay for six weeks. For six weeks. Yeah, it, it, it was. Oh, it, it, it was almost like you're banned from this historical society. You yeah. and your children and your children's children. For six weeks. There we go. We talked about memeable moments earlier. I'm going to make a meme of that and stick it in mostly from Sugar Packets, the Simpsons history group. Which is on fire at the minute. If you're not currently a member of mostly from Sugar Packets, uh, I, I would go for it. You won't regret it. Yeah, definitely. So that left me trying desperately to find El Salvador in The Simpsons. You'll be surprised to know I'm not going to uh, bring up the boy meets curl uh, example. <laughs> because El Salvador, I mean, their location in the, in the globe is a dead giveaway for this. They don't have a Winter Olympics team in no. that uh, in that episode, it, when everybody else seems to as well. They may have been one of the um, observing but not participating countries, but we don't get to see many of them. Then I followed a lead about apparently Homer sings the words El Salvador in season 14, episode one, How I Spent My Strummer Vacation. But that's a terrible episode. And he's just singing the words. So, you know, it's not really a, a, a Salvadorian um, reference, I would say. However, I then came across our old friend, Extapolatakettle. Mm. He is an Olmec head. And of course, the Olmecs were, they were native to that area a, a long, long time ago. But it's, it's very much like, uh, like Bart passing his exam in, in Bart Gets an F. You know, yeah, I made it just barely. But I made it. And, and I think everyone can give me this one. Absolutely. Excellent. And given we're both melting, we'll <laughs> leave you to it for this uh, this edition. So don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast of retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks very much for listening and stay cool out there. Mm. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.